This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on this Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. We were in conversation with Jonathan, a man on a mission and in remission following a breast cancer battle. He was sharing his story and breaking that stigma. Plus, Dr. Ashraf was teaching men how to self-examine. Our vet, Dr. Sarah Elliott, was here to answer all of your pet concerns from dental to how to have a long and healthy life for your animal. And the fit midwife was talking birth trauma. Why those words, at least the baby is healthy, can be so damaging. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It is October um, and all month, of course, we've been focusing on breast cancer awareness, encouraging people to go and get a screening. I went myself. I I can say now that I had to go back for a follow-up MRI and had a few days of mm, trepidation and fear, but I did get a phone call from the doctor yesterday and everything is A-OK. A lot of the focus does seem to be around encouraging women to get screenings and rightfully so, but... We should also be speaking to the men out there too. According to one report, around 1 in 833 men will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. And today, joining us in the studio is Jonathan Leonard, here to tell his story and hopefully educate all of us about what he's been through, both physically and emotionally, Jonathan, because I think we use that word journey all the time with cancer. But I think I think sometimes it is really, really apt. So thank you, first of all, for coming in and sharing your story, sharing what you have been through. Can you take us back to, I guess, when you first realised that something wasn't quite right? Yeah, definitely, Helen. Um, Look, and I think even to begin, I want to just thank you for highlighting this because this is something that, you know, doesn't get discussed enough. Mm. For me, it was about two years ago. um, I was taking a shower, normal evening shower, I sort of was washing my chest and I felt a lump and I just thought, okay, that shouldn't be there. Um, I was gym training every day, you know, I was peak fitness and, yeah, it just wasn't right, but I ignored it. I I sort of just went, okay, well, maybe it's a stress or something, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. The big thing for me was then about, um, you know, three months later I was actually again in the shower and there was a lump on the other side and I went, okay, this is definitely not right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, why do I have these lumps? So even then I was reluctant to go to a doctor and have it checked out. I spoke to my trainer first, you know, this typical masculine thing of like, hey, you know, Oh. What's this? Is, is is this like muscle? Is this you know like a stress issue? And it was actually my trainer who said to me, "Go to the doctor, get this checked." And I, I, I think like many people, if you find a lump, it's like which doctor do you go to? Do you go straight to an oncologist? Do you go do you go to, to your GP? What's going to happen there? There's still kind of a bit of a sense of mystery about what that appointment would even entail, which I think is why a lot of people do what you do or did. And just just put it off. So, what was that initial appointment like? So, initial appointment was I um, went and met with the GP, um, and she sort of had a bit of a feel, and she went, "Okay, I think you need to go straight and see an internal medicine specialist." Um, so, next appointment was with the internal. Then it was straight off to uh, CT scan. Um, sorry, uh, ultrasound first, then CT scan which they uh, identified the tumours and then it was on to 
oncology to go, okay, how do we deal with this? That sounds like it happened really fast. It happened in the space of about 48 hours, which is one of the wonderful things here in Dubai. Honestly, thank you for saying that. Thank you, because I, as I said, when I went for my breast screening the week before last, I had an ultrasound, I had a mammogram, and they said, okay, we want you to come back for an MRI, and that was approved within the day, and I was booked in. It, and I, my heart was honestly breaking for people around the world who haven't got access to that kind of help and the speed and the insurance, because... It does save lives. And, you know, who knows, had more time been put in your way, had more obstacles, be it financial or practical, been put, been put in your way, you might not have gone back for a checkup. You might have dismissed it, thought maybe things will go away or just chosen to ignore it. So that happened fast. Exactly. And and it did move fast. And that is one of the wonderful things here in the fact that, um, you know, the medical system here is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, given the fact that everyone has insurance, which is one of the you know, blessings of being in this part of the world. Um, you know, they move incredibly quickly when there is something serious and they don't mess around. What I was it was... like getting that diagnosis though? How did you how did you respond when you were told breast cancer? I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. Um, you know, I lost my mother to cancer. Um, I lost my step... Uh, sorry, my mother-in-law to uh, breast cancer. My... Sister-in-law has had breast cancer. You know, it's a very common thing that you hear about with women. So to suddenly be told you have breast cancer for a man is a little bit jarring. You know, it's like, no, this doesn't happen to men. I did a bit of research afterwards and, um, I mean, the only stats I can get is like from America at the moment and it's like one in 100 breast cancer diagnosis are men. It's not that uncommon then. That, not that uncommon. But I think I think a lot of it that people aren't talking about it, you know, and perhaps that it was it's been an issue for many people. I think that's why you coming on today is is, is hopefully life saving for for people, but also really illuminating as well. Because who who was around you then at that point to help support you upon that diagnosis? Yes, yeah, so I had my family around me and um, and friends and. You know, I was able to open up to a very close group of people. Um, obviously, you know, I then went in for surgery, double mastectomy, which, you know, again, for a man is a very strange concept. You know, we, we hear about women having double mastectomies and, you know, but for a man, you know, and as I said before, this is the egotistical masculine side. You know, I was at peak training performance. I had the perfect chest. I just got the six pack and then all of a sudden they're removing all my breast tissue. I have no chest anymore. You know, I'm waking up in hospital, you know, with my nipples reattached, you know, and it's it's very emasculating. And that's not even going into the treatment that then follows afterwards. So one of the things that concerns me about the statistics that I went through is that one in 100 men get breast cancer. Only 1% of those actually follow up with their doctors. Oh, my goodness. Because they're not aware. There is not the common knowledge out there that men get breast cancer as well. Joining us in the studio now, Jonathan Land with us sharing his story. And if you want to share yours, any questions, messages of support, of course, we'd love to hear from you. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can be anonymous. You can leave your name off if you prefer. It's 4001. You've got that app and the WhatsApp as well. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. 
Two years ago, Jonathan Leonard found not one, but two lumps in his chest and was diagnosed with breast cancer after a double mastectomy. Treatment began. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about, use the word emasculated then. And I, I wondered if you wouldn't mind kind of unpacking that a little bit. Yeah, okay. Um, I think, Helen, I, I, I would probably describe myself as a pretty self-aware um, guy, you know, um, I uh, I do therapy, I go to men's groups, you know, I'm very open about things. But when the diagnosis came the first time and it was breast cancer, that was a little bit, um, I think the first reaction that went through my head is, this happens to women, you know, not to men. You've obviously got it wrong. And I questioned that with the doctors. Um, the second part was... Post uh, the surgical intervention is then the treatment that uh, they provide, which is commonly here a drug called tamoxifen, which is a estrogen blocker. Um, and so the minute the doctor says, I'm putting you on an estrogen blocker, once again, your toxic masculinity is just shattered in the fact that you go, well, hang on. Do I have too much estrogen? Am I not enough of a man? That's a lady hormone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, the whole process was a little bit like, okay, this happens to women. Now you're putting me on a drug that stops a female hormone. You know, what is wrong with me? And I had to slowly unpack that whole sort of psychological part of it as well. And um through the help of, you know, I mean, some very good friends and um, some good support, I was able to come to the point of going, okay, let's ditch the labels, mm -hmm. you know, and let's focus on what this actually is. Mm -hmm. But there's still that sense of, you know, this shouldn't happen to men. And until you start to dig into the research, I mean, we as men, we're told to, um, you know, check our male parts, we're told to, you know, check our prostate after 50, etc. We are not told to check our breasts. That information is not out there. And this is one of the things that I wanted to, you know, highlight in especially this month of breast cancer awareness is, you know, if you feel the slightest thing in your chest, go get it checked because it does happen. And the journey doesn't have to be scary. And this is what I learnt Unfortunately, afterwards, when I was able to finally stop and take stock of everything that had happened, and I went, you know what? That wasn't scary at all. There are a lot worse things that could happen in life mm -hmm. than what I've been through. But because we're not educated, because we don't discuss male breast cancer, because we don't talk about the fact that this can happen – it is just so easily overlooked. And then it is a case of trying to unpack it all in your own head at the same time as going through surgery, treatment, everything else. Life. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's I think that raises a really interesting point, Jonathan, about there being an element of shame in that. And unfortunately, when there's shame, there's silence. And when there's silence, there's time. And when it's cancer, you know, cancer loves time. You know, that early detection is so so crucial how early did you catch it and and how important was that to then you obviously now recovery um so for me because i left it for probably about 12 months from when i first felt the first lump um 
I was fairly lucky by the time that um, I got surgical intervention, it was grade two. It probably only would have been grade one um, if I'd moved immediately and it probably wouldn't have spread to the other side. So, yeah, the delay did cost me um, and I probably wouldn't have had to have the level of surgery and treatment that I'd had if I had moved a lot quicker. Can you tell us about the side effects of the medications you were on? How, how, what was that treatment element like? Yeah, look, I mean, the treatment is different for everybody in every case. Um, for me, it was pretty rough. Um, it was daily vomiting um, pretty much every morning after taking the pills, um, which is really hard on your family as well when they're around trying to support you and, you know... Um, it was a mixture of massive weight gain because um, one of the other things they treat you is, is steroids. To mm, My dad gained 15 kilos yeah. when he had steroids around, around his treatment as well. Yeah, not, so not massive good, not- weight gain, which is also, you know, um, a little bit... Uh, that must have been pretty galling when you'd been in the best shape of your life and training hard. Yeah, I just finally got my six pack and then all of a sudden I'm packing on the weight from the steroids. <laughs> got the family but, pack. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, so daily vomiting, um, nausea, um, sleeplessness. Um, I had to actually then see a psychologist um, to um, go on some antidepressants. I, I, I fell into a pretty low slump of, you know, feeling quite emasculated, quite useless uh, feeling like I couldn't stand up for everyone else because um, I was lucky standing up for my own self at the time. Mm. Um, you know, being put on anti-anxiety medication to help sort of calm me to sleep at night time because you just ruminate these thoughts in your head. Um, and I think if we go back to what I said before, you know, I mean, the, the medical system here is absolutely fantastic you know, the treatment was fantastic. The speed was fantastic. The only thing that I think was missing was the lack of sharing of information of how to deal with the emotional side of things. I think there's two pieces missing. It's, it's the before that. It's the awareness of the checking. And then, as you say, the the softer side, the, the stuff that's going to get you through and smiling and back on your feet like you are today. So it's been a couple of years. How are you today? I'm good. I'm currently in remission, um, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Um, Dealing with a little bit of leftover, um, you know, scar tissue and stuff, which, you know, um, I know sounds shallow. It's a very cosmetic sort of thing, but wanting to clean up and and get back to myself. Um, I am ecstatic at the way my doctors dealt with it. I am very happy to um, be here and be able to talk about it because I know this has happened to other men who have ignored it and they're not around today to actually be able to this conversation. The other part of it is I've got a new outlook on just, you know, every day is a gift. You know, we don't know. And October is a wonderful time to remind everyone to, you know, male, female, whatever, to, to get checked. But it's not just October. It's every day, 365 days a year. If anything comes up, just talk to your doctor. It's, you know, 
Well, I cannot thank you enough. It's wonderful to see you here looking so well and speaking so openly and honestly. And I think the this is a hugely important conversation for many, many reasons. And I'm sure it's probably helpful for you as well to, to claim back a bit of that power and be like, you know what? This is what I can do to help other men. And I think, I hope men listening today will be paying attention to what we've been saying Jonathan thank you so much for your time you're welcome it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and for those men listening today who think okay we're talking about self-examination we're talking about education but how don't worry we've got your back we're going to be speaking to a doctor next home or away on afternoons with Helen Farmer Speaking to us now from the medical side is Dr. Ashraf, a specialist general surgeon at Health Hub Clinic um, in Festival City. Dr. Ashraf, thank you so much for joining us. And I didn't want to leave Jonathan's story there, just him talking about that, you know, chance encounter with a lump when he was in the shower and then two lumps months later without offering some advice, really, some practical steps for men out there to self-examine. Before we get to that, though, I was wondering if you could tell me, so are you seeing um, breast cancer on the rise in men or thanks to conversations such as the one Jonathan's starting, are we having more awareness? Hello, I hope uh, everybody is well. Uh, Actually speaking, um, one out of 100 breast cancer diagnosis is found in men. And uh, during my career for the last 40 years, uh, maybe only I found, um, I saw one or two only cases of breast cancer in men. And Jonathan's point there was one in 100 men, I'm sorry, one in 100 breast cancer diagnoses are men, but very few of that one actually seek help, actually go through the process of treatment. And there seems to be as he was explaining himself, you know, an element of shame and, we you know, emasculation around it as well. And I really hope that by raising awareness through October, but also hearing stories all the, all the year round, um, we can help get that number into the clinic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about if a man does come to you or to their GP with a lump, with some abnormalities, something they're worried about in their chest, what does an exam look like in the clinic? What, what could a man expect to go through? This is, um, first of all, I would like to say that early detection of breast cancer in males or females it is the best, faster way for treatment. Usually the men ignore that to examine themselves, and usually the ladies do the self-examination in the home, and when they found a lump, even the consistency is soft or firm or hard, they will run to the GP or gynecologist or surgeon. We saw maybe two or three cases, some men coming by examination, and we found a lump. A lump, uh, this is, I want to say also another one thing, that uh, three signs, very important for self-examination for the man, for himself, in order that he will go to the clinic. Number one, lump. Any lump in the breast may be soft, may be hard. Usually it is abnormal, found a lump in the breast of a man. Number two, there is some nipple discharge which is unusual to find the nipple discharge in a man, especially if there is some blood discharge, it's a very important sign to let him go and examine. Number three, some nipple retraction, which is very important, and again, third sign for him to go and examine. This, uh, the radiologists, they prefer to do ultrasound, and this is usually happen above the age of 35, until maybe 70, 78, there is no special age for that. 
the jury prefer to do ultrasound better than mammography for the men, as usually, as we know all, that the tissue in the breast for the man is less mm. in condensity, is less. Yeah, with, I mean, after I had my mammogram a couple of weeks ago, yes, you you know, that, that breast tissue is it put in the machine and, and compressed. And as you say, you yes, know, men, men, yes. men won't have that volume yeah, of tissue yes, for, yes. for a mammogram. So still they prefer the ultrasound. And when they try to find any abnormal vision, this we're going for a core biopsy or for the surgery bag. So let's talk self-examination. Jonathan saying it was really by chance in the shower that he found these lumps. And we... we Thankfully, there is a lot of information about there about how women can self-examine, you know, during what time of the month you should be doing it. What about men? Can you give us a very practical, basic guide for gentlemen listening about how they can self-examine their chest, what they need to look yes, for and sure. feel? Yes, sure. And uh, uh, I'm very quite satisfied about what you said, because usually the females and the lady, they know about the self-examination and when is it before the time of the period or after that. But usually... When I talk with too many people, especially from another, another category, the men, and I ask them, are you examining your breast? He says, no, we don't have any idea that maybe the men will go to breast cancer, I know about the prostate cancer, I know about the lung cancer, I know about cancer of the rectum, which is very common nowadays, but breast cancer, I said, yes, you have to do self-examination, same thing as the lady. Self-examination should be done in the home using the pads of the fingers, not the tips. We're using the pads of the fingers of the right hand to examine slowly the left side of the breast, part by part, especially the nipple and in the arm pit. After that, we are using the left hand, the pads of the left hand. Again, not the tips. It's very important because by the tips, they will never feel any lump or they will never catch any mess if it is normal or abnormal. And by the left hand, the left part of the hand, not the tips of the hand, they will examine the right breast and the armpit. Once they see a lump, this lump may be soft. Soft lump may be something not serious. It may be something soft tissue like pomas or some accumulation of the fat. But what we're talking here about is they feel hard lump. This is very important with any nipple change or any nipple discharge. This is very quiet sign that they should go, usually, as we said, for the doctor to be examined. I have another opinion that if they found the lump even soft or hard, because it will be very difficult for them to know if it's soft or hard. Mm-hmm. So it is better to go be examined to be in the safe side. And again, this is very important for all the people listening to me. Early detection of breast cancer, it is the best proper treatment according to what I see in my life. And that is decades of experience. Dr. Ashraf, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Gentlemen, you know how to do it now. Um, There are resources online and it does take incredible men like Jonathan to speak up, share his experience, to really shine a light on the fact that men get breast cancer too. Dr. Ashraf speaking to us there, the specialist general surgeon at Health Hub Clinic in Festival City. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. We are with you until five o'clock this afternoon. And when I say we, joining us in the hot seat today, Dr. Sarah Elliott. Welcome to the back to the Dubai Eye Studio. What's keeping you busy right now? Oh, my goodness. We've got all sorts going on. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, can I just ask you a question? Sure. It's just occurred to me. We're neighbours. We know we live very, very close. Well, you, you don't live there, but you basically live there. The cl- I do. The clinic is there. Really close to my house. I think I saw bats in our 
back garden the other day. There's loads of bats around. Are there really? I'm going to have to move house. Oh, you see them at night. I mean, virtually anywhere in Dubai. We actually had a... um, one that was found, a little tiny, I tiny little baby. Do you saying? Do you remember? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was tiny. It still wasn't cute. I think they're absolutely revolting. But I, yeah, I was walking down the back of our house and I was like, I think I just saw two bats. Look, we're going to just burn the house down now. Just can't, I just cannot cope with it. Thank you for verifying that. I think. Um, lots coming into clinic, I'm sure, and lots coming in on the text line as well. Don't forget to contact us here in Dubai I 103.8. You can use a WhatsApp, you can use your ARN Play app, the SMS 4001 to get Dr. Sarah's take on anything that might be on your mind, health behaviour wise. Let's talk teeth. What are the issues that you have seen in your time and what should we as pet parents be doing to best protect those gnashes? I think it's one of those things that's often forgotten about. And particularly at the moment, as a parent, I'm sort of waiting for Halloween to come up. We've just had Diwali. (laughs) There are sweets and treats everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that goes for our pets as well, because we tend to feel guilty enough when we have treats to pass along the line. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you do, don't you? Yeah, totally. Especially when you get those, the the puppy dog eyes. So, this is such a strange question, but do dogs' teeth decay in the same way that ours do and not that we're ever going to sit there and give our you know dogs you know chubby chubby lollipops but if they're having food that have got a naturally higher amount of sugar in do we need to be tuned into that it is it's sugar that causes problems but also you get problems with soft food because it clings to the teeth Uh, I mean in, in us hopefully we brush our teeth often enough that any of those stray bits of chicken or whatever it is between your teeth get taken out but imagine with your dog if they're not brushing their teeth which they don't have thumbs, so you've got to do it for them. Um, but if you're not doing that, then those bits of food can stay there and sit and fester and decay until the tooth joins it. Yeah, Cats are a bit different because who looks in their cat's mouth? You know, Unless your cat's yawning in front of you, nobody looks at your cat. And actually cats get a lot of dental problems, especially linked to, let's say they've had cat flu as tiny kittens. They're much more likely to get tooth decay as, as time goes on. And we've, I mean, we had a two-and-a-half-year-old cat last week that we had to take 11 teeth out of. <gasps> oh, poor little soul. Oh, a question here um, saying, um, what does Dr. Sarah think about the dental chews for dogs? It depends on the chew. Um, I mean, there is one massively known brand that's in most supermarkets, and that one, it, just read the, read the ingredients. It is so full of sugar and fat, it's ridiculous. We were relocating a bulldog and that bulldog had been on a diet. Bulldogs, if they're going to travel, they're a much higher risk. So you need to get their weight down. And we were struggling to get the weight down and you know, spoke to the owner about what they were doing, following the diet religiously, apart from they were giving one of these dental sticks a day. And that dog lost two kilos in weight in one month just from taking those dental sticks off. That's where I'm going wrong. I need to stop with the dental sticks. (laughs) Wayne saying, if you don't like bats, don't don't go to the Seychelles. It's like dogs hanging off the trees and power lines. It's the same in Mauritius. And the wingspan is horrendous. Do you know what what bothers me most? Is when you look up and you can see like the thin skin. I just can't cope with it at all. Oh, well. Seychelles off the list. Um, Back to teeth. Now, you, of course, advocate strongly for proper dental cleaning and being done often, of course, under sedation. Um, Talk us a little through the frequency needed for that, Dr. Sarah. I think 
it's it's one of those things that it depends on depends on your dog or cat how often they need it say if they've had childhood problems they're more likely to need regular dentals it depends on the breed and size of dog um very small dogs are much more likely to have dental decay quite quickly why is that I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, part of it's genetic. It's probably diet as well, but there is a large portion of it that is genetic. Now, if you do have any questions here on Dubai I 103.8, Dr. Sarah, we have stolen her away from her busy clinic until five o'clock this afternoon. So do get in touch. Chance to get some free advice live on the show, some reassurances, uh, expert second opinion. Also to share your stories as well. Every single message we get, whether it is on the WhatsApp, the SMS or the Play app. And it could just be a photo. We'll automatically put you in the draw to win an enormous hamper from Prenup Pro Plan. We are going to go to the text line next. Sunil wants to know, what can you do to make your dog live as long as possible? We'll be finding out next. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Joining us live in the studio is Dr. Sarah Elliott from the British Veterinary Hospital, here to help you out. So if you do have any questions, any concerns, want to share a story, get in touch. Not only will you get advice live on the show, but you'll also be in the chance of winning. We have got a hamper from Purina Pro Plan full of food and supplements, treats and toys. Um, so lovely to have so many messages this afternoon we are going to try and get through as many as possible a really great question here from Sunil saying I've heard that dogs typically live shorter lives than in our grandparents generation and I'm wondering how to help our dog honey live her fullest longest life love this I think that's brilliant because it encompasses everything that I do as a vet and we do Uh, it's about looking after them from puppy through to older age. I think the, the term that's a buzzword at the minute is the health span, as, which is it's not just number of years you're after, you want healthy years. Mm. And that is about keeping them a correct weight before they're a year old because that's where the patterns are set and the fat cells are set. So if they're fat before they're a year old, then they struggle with weight for the rest of their lives. So really, really important that first year of life that we get them growing properly And there are now sort of some really nice sort of growth charts and things that we can follow for puppies to make sure that they're growing properly. Oh, God, I I didn't even realise that it kind of set the tone that clearly from the outset. Really, really does. And, you know, that it goes in with, you know, so so weight and again, back to teeth, looking after teeth because Mm -hmm. bad teeth mean bad heart, which means infections elsewhere. Um, looking after joints, which means looking after the exercise before they're a year old to make sure they're not overdoing it in mm-hmm. the same way we look after our kids. And then beyond making sure that they stay healthy. Oh, Very scary but interesting fact is that if you feed your dog 10% over their calories for a day, then you as an owner have to walk 10,000 steps to get that weight off them. Extra steps. Now step, that's a lot. I mean, you away think, from the treats. That's, that's a small treat to end up with that massive need for exercise to, to work it off. But I think the other bit that we are sort of working more, more as vets is working through senior lifestyles as well, making sure that we've got them on the correct foods through their lives. And as they get older, making sure that the foods are the right ones to lower the protein content, increase the sort of various joint supplements, mm-hmm. and even the, the brain stimulants to try and keep their brains healthy as they get older. It's, it's massive science at the moment, but it's not about drugs. It's about sort of healthy lifestyle as we go through. Great question, Neil. Thank you so much for that. To the text line again, it is Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer, Pets and Vets, and a vet saying, this is Nina, a.k.a. the floof. And I sent, I'm going to show you this when the news is on, Dr. Sarah. 
the fluffiest cat, saying she loves Prina Pro Plan, um, the salmon flavour, the only kipple she loves. Um, let's stay with cats, actually. No name on this message saying, Hi, Doc, can you please advise which wet slash dry cat food is healthy for indoor adult cats? Because there's such a huge choice out there. How do you narrow down what's going to work for your often quite particular cat? I think, again, great that, I mean, there are a, sort of roughly three ranges of most cat foods. You've got the supermarket type, you've got the pet shop type, and then you've got your veterinary specific type. And they are different price brackets, but they're different price brackets for a reason. Uh, I would always suggest the veterinary exclusive because those are the ones that stop urine stones from developing. They're the ones that um, are correct weight management and just protein levels. Everything about those diets is designed to help them. Even things like um, taurine for heart health is designed to fit within those uh, veterinary exclusive diets so please go for those ones and good brands but go for a veterinary exclusive hope that helps we have got questions galore this afternoon dr sarah elliott joining us live on dubai i 103.8 you're listening to pets and vets on afternoons with helen farmer with ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon lamb turkey and chicken your chance to get your questions answered, whether it is health or behaviour, whether it's should we go to the vets or in need of an expert second opinion. Dr. Sarah Elliott, to the text line we go. Um, message here going, I've got an eight-month-old multi-poo that's incredibly picky when it comes to food. We've religiously stuck to the same brand. I've done our best not to deviate from feeding times, in addition to not leaving food out through the day, but sticking to schedules. He seems to go for two or three feeding sessions of barely touching it and then finishing everything in one go. I was concerned at the lack of consistency is eating but I don't want to cave in and trying different things to make a meat what is your advice because I'm concerned he's not getting the right amount during his growing stage why don't you just bring him down and let's actually have a look at him and see what his weight's like rather than worrying yourself it's a bit like kids some kids eat every meal others binge and then go without Mm -hmm. so let's have a look if he is a good body weight then please stop worrying if he is underweight then we then we look at it Okay, I think that's really good advice because it is, it is exactly like kids. You get yourself, I mean, I worry about what my five-year-old is eating and not eating. And it is only when you go to an expert and say, do you know what? Looking at the chart, looking at, you know, you, know, you, don't, you don't pat down a five-year-old to check for the ribs, but you do, but you do, you do in a dog. You know, let's, let's put a plan in place if it needs it. Um, as I said, you're more than welcome to give us a call here at Dubai I 103.8-04871-5500. And we've got Rayana here, a first-time cat mum. I'm a first-time cat mum. We got a, four, a four-year-old cat. We would like to know uh, her diet, how, how many times should be wet food and how many times a day is dry food. We also want to know how often should we let her take a bath and cut her nails. I love the phrasing. How long should we let her let her take a bath? As if she's at the bathroom door being like, just one more soak, mummy, please. Let's start with diet there. She's talking about wet and dry food. Do you need to have both or could you choose one? You can choose one. I would preferentially choose dry food um, over the wet food, simply because most of the good quality dry foods are better for cats. Now, if you do want to feed wet food, I would do it more as a treat rather than as an essential part of their feeding. I would also see how she gets on through the day because cats are masters at getting our attention when we most need our sleep. And they will often come to you. If you, if you start putting into habit that you feed her wet food 
when she first wakes up, she'll probably enjoy it more. But it means that her alarm clock will tell you to wake up 20 minutes earlier each morning until you just don't bother going to bed at all. So just like children. (laughs) Yeah, just plan it according to your day and when suitable for you and when it's actually not going to allow her to manipulate your sleep time. What about bathing? Bathing... It depends on the cat. If she's a a long-haired cat, then she maybe some long-haired cats do need help with their grooming and do need brushed every day and do need the odd bath. And again, it depends on coat type. Some will get quite greasy. Some of them are very, very clean and don't need any sort of bathing. Um, A short-haired cat doesn't need a bath. However, if they are going outside or if they are shedding a lot, then I'd rather bath my cats to reduce the amount of fur that's left on the furniture. Yeah very practical and lastly cutting claws is that something that's necessary in all cats and is that something you could do at home it's something if your cat goes outdoors then very often they need their weapons to defend themselves so i wouldn't be too keen on clipping claws for a cat that goes outside that may have to do that an indoor cat i think it very much depends on the cat Um, some cats will use the scratching post to sort their nails out other cats use their claws as a means of attracting our attention or destroying furniture. And, you know, much as we love our cats, we also do quite like our furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, I know with my cats, my cats would use catching post, uh, scratching post, never need their nails cut. But I used to leave a pair of nail scissors on the table. And if my cats came and scratched the sofa, I clipped one nail. And they soon learnt <laughs> that that they couldn't come and scratch the sofa. I also tried the other techniques of putting the scratching post next to the sofa and moving them to where I wanted. But I did find that the happy balance was them knowing that I would clip their nails Mm. if I felt that they needed it. Action and consequence, cats. Don't mess with Dr. Sarah. In the studio now, Dr. Sarah Elliott from the British Veterinary Hospital. I'm Helen Farmer. This is Pets and Vets. And you can contact the show with any questions, comments, Amusing stories um, as well on 4001 on the ARN Play app. And you can send photos too as well on the WhatsApp 04871 double Fiona's saying, we're currently fostering a mum cat and three adorable kittens. Two of the kittens will not litter train. I'm regularly putting them in the litter. It's a good position designed for kittens. A week and a half in, they're still not toileting. They're still toileting anywhere but the litter. Their bed their toys on us in the middle of the floor. The floor isn't easy clean, um, but it's make, penning them in is making them miserable. Um, they can't be rehomed until they're litter trained, so any tips would be welcome. How old are these kittens? Because I think that's quite important. I'd also like to know, most cats are very, very natural at litter training. So if they're taking a bit of time, then I'd want to know whether they actually had a bit of diarrhea, whether there was a problem there. So they maybe do need a bit of a checkup. Maybe they do have an issue that they aren't quite as continent. So sometimes we can get them where the anus doesn't form as well as it should do, so they can't hold it and therefore drop it. it just happens when they where go. it happens. Absolutely. Okay. Hope that helps, Fiona, and all the very best. Um, following up on your comment about cats' feeding times um, and yeah, be, being a bit manipulative when to get what they want. Message here saying, I think my cat can read the clock. How do they know exactly to the minute what their feeding time is? I used to have a dog in England and we had a grandfather clock in our house and she could count six strikes she always got fed at six o'clock and she'd ignore the clock the rest of the time and as soon as it struck six she'd be jumping around in front of you waiting hi mum and finn thank you for this finn sharing my husband died three years ago and one of my cats was close to him my husband's brother and his wife visited and i could see my cat recognize similarities in the brother she couldn't understand why she wasn't receiving the usual attention it's 
really sad. I was just saying a couple of minutes ago about um, my dog. My dad's a triplet. And when we were growing up, our dog, Susie, loved my dad. And he used to work overseas. And we hadn't seen him for a little while. And dog hadn't seen him for longer. And my dad's triplet brother came to see us. And she was convinced it was my dad. She was ever so excited. And then after about 20 minutes, half an hour, she sort of started to cotton on that it wasn't quite her dad. So we got my uncle to do my father's back exercises and he was lying on the floor doing the exercises and my dog went wild. She Aww. just ran round and round. She was so excited because she thought she'd got her dad. Oh, bless. What was it like having a dad that was a triplet? I mean, it meant that you not- couldn't forget birthdays, really, could you? I mean, there were three of them. Not that you know any different, but that must have been so interesting. I bet you had some stories to tell about growing up full of mischief with, uh, with identical. Um. My dad and his brother Mike are identical. The other one's non-identical. So, so I mean, my dad tells the stories about swapping girlfriends and doing <laughs> all these things um, <laughs> as he grew up. But it's, it's strange. Although they're identical, they go through phases where they look very alike and phases where they look quite different. How interesting. Oh, sorry, off topic. But I, I was just curious to know. To the text line, Dr. Sarah Elliott. Um, Bettina saying, thanks for this. Great timing. Our three-year-old dog woke up bright and happy this morning, ate breakfast with gusto, quick walk, normal wee and poo. But when I went to take him out for um, a run, usually one of his favourite things, he took himself back to bed. Nothing out of the ordinary routine, temperatures normal, gums normal, no excessive thirst or drooling, no obvious signs of anything wrong at all. He's cuddly and happy to be handled, but wants to stay in his bed today, which isn't like him. Do I take him into the vet for something so non-specific? I would probably give him today as an off day and see what he's like tomorrow. If he's not himself tomorrow, then I'd definitely, definitely get him down there. What we didn't say on there, what sort of dog he was. Doesn't say, I'm afraid. Yeah, so I don't know how big he is or you know, if it was immediately after he came back from a walk. It doesn't sound as though there's anything earth-shatteringly serious there, but obviously if he's not well tomorrow, I'd like him in. You know, as a parent and a pet parent, your instincts, don't you, about something being a bit off, Bettina? So, yeah, I think as Dr. Sarah said, we all have off days, but... Check in, keep an eye, check in tomorrow. Let us know, hope he's okay. Um, Fireworks. We, of course, had a number of them this week. And remember, remember, is coming up in a couple of weeks as well. Anything that we can be doing now, Dr. Sarah, to kind of help prepare our animals for unexpected or distressing noises? Because often we have this conversation on the day of bonfire night, for example, or on the day of Diwali. Um, But anything we can do in the run up to that can often be more beneficial for everybody. There's all sorts of things we can do. We can, um, I mean, certainly if you've got a dog or a cat that is very, very frightened by fireworks, I'd go down to your vets because we do have some new medications that are much, much better for on the night effect. But certainly, you know, preparing yourself in advance, you can do things like introduce sessions of white noise in the house where you sort of play sort of, yeah, your hoover sounds, your vacuum cleaner sounds and, and other things, your white noise or TV on to take away from the noise outside. You can get pets used to having the curtains drawn early for yeah, mm. a couple of weeks now so that you're muffling the noise out. You can change your walking times. It's cooler now, but making sure that you're not walking your dogs out when the fireworks are. I mean, last night I went out for a walk, not with a dog, with a with a child. And dog walk with a child. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was quite scary just as a grown-up the way the fireworks were going off. Mm. Yeah, it was very quick behind you. And it, yeah, if your hearing is a thousand times more acute than ours, that's going to be terrifying. 
Thank you for highlighting that. I think that's um, a really good point. If we as adults are feeling, you know, a little bit threatened or on edge, that unpredictability of it all, um, anything you can be doing. Um, Timely message, actually, Ray saying, my fireworks tips, get them as tired as possible before sunset, Um, build enrichment activities on top of walks and consider a licky mat or a Kong for the evening. I think those are great. The other things you can do would be your sort of um, your sort of food toys. So actually, instead of feeding them from the bowl, get those buster cubes out, get the other toys out, use the uh, maize feeders, really make them work for it for a couple of hours. Message from G saying this is, G has um, a very charming bulldog called Dave. And when you see you see Dave, couldn't be called anything else. Dave knows the clock not so much for food, but bed. 8 p.m. He likes to go to bed. <laughs> What a bulldog. I know. Well, it, it does raise an interesting point in our house because it's my husband's birthday today. Happy birthday, Mr. Farmer. Um, he took the day off work. So normally he is up at five, walks the dogs from kind of 5.15 to six o'clock and then gets to work, you know, about just after that. And this morning I was like, just have a little sleep in, honestly. The dogs don't need to be up at five o'clock this morning. You don't need to be up at five. Just, just go back to sleep. So we did, and we all kind of emerged at six o'clock. The dogs were still so happy snoozing on their beds. I was like, this isn't... They'd be quite happy getting up a little bit later. So, But, to, but what is it about dogs and kids and weekends where they're up yeah, with the sparrows, up at the crack of dawn, and through the week you can't shift them? I know, I know, I know. So I just want to send a public apology to Jarvis and Lucy. You think we've been waking up before your natural bedtime. But our dogs are the same, G. Jarvis will take himself off to his off to his bed if it's yeah. out. He's like, "All right, guys, it's enough Netflix." I've got a client with a dog that actually barks at her to go to bed if she's late. <gasps> he just stands there on the stairs and barks. <laughs> like your conscience. <laughs> Not one more episode. You don't need to watch Lovers Blind. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah, for all of your insights. Always an absolute pleasure. Um, if you do want to follow up on any of our discussions and have some one-on-one time with Dr. Sarah and her team, they are there on, on Wassell Road, by Marina as well, at the British Veterinary Hospital. Thank you so, so much. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Now, if you have experienced birth trauma, I don't have to tell you just how real it is and how debilitating it can be. Unfortunately, you might need to tell your parents, your co-workers, your friends, healthcare providers, even your partner. They might see the outcome of a healthy baby as a success, regardless of what happened to you during the process. We are talking birth trauma, where mothers are so often overlooked with the justification of a healthy baby and all that it entails. Nikki Oliver is with us, aka the fit midwife, practicing midwife here in Dubai and a pre and postpartum training specialist. If you do want her advice, please do get in touch because in the wake of a traumatic birth, people so often say things with the best of intentions, like, you know, at least you and baby are well or next time it'll be different. It's just one day in your life. So how can you respond to these phrases? Nikki, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Helen. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, I think this is such an important topic and this is something you flagged on your Instagram recently and the outpouring of messages for women that felt like they'd been misunderstood or overlooked um, or just belittled I think with that phrase at least baby is is well mm-hmm. um, can I ask you a little bit about some of the situations that you might have witnessed a- around this coming up yeah so um, the reason I kind of posted what I did is um, I personally I haven't had children obviously I've been a midwife for 10 years so I've seen lots of things 
Um, but a, a lot of my friends have experienced birth trauma, so it's quite close to me and uh, personal to me on that level as well. Um, I do hear the phrase a lot, at least you have a healthy baby. And whilst the health of baby and mom, one is not more important than the other, using that, that phrase can be very dismissive to what women and men actually go through mm-hmm. in the bit to have that healthy baby. And I think that's exactly right. It's so dismissive because I think an awful lot of women, and I think as you rightly say there, dads as well, whether it is something happening without consent or a birth plan that, that didn't go to plan or something, you know, something that could have been potentially very dangerous, there is an element of grief that you need to go through um, after that's happened because you haven't had what you what you'd hoped and what can the after effects be if a mum isn't supported isn't listened to what have you seen play out after getting home from the hospital even so what we know um evidence tells us that if someone has a traumatic event and you know it's not for us to define what people find traumatic mm, very true. that's a really important kind of um point that we we always need to make it's not for us to define what anybody else experiences and how they experience it. So if somebody's telling you, I had a really hard time, you know, we're just taking that at face value. We know that actually trauma during birth can increase significantly your senses of postpartum anxiety and depression disorders. And a lot of the time, these don't surface in the first sort of three months. We actually know it's a few months down the line when people start to realize, oh, I'm not okay. I don't think I process this, uh, I can't believe this happened to me. And that's three months down the line, you don't have advice involvement, you've mm. probably not seen your OBGYN anymore. So, And in a country such as Dubai, where, where a lot of us are expats, we don't necessarily have that social network, that family network that we can rely on. So women end up becoming very isolated and almost thinking, well, what's wrong with me? I've got, I've got this baby here, this baby's healthy. Mm. Am I selfish? Why do I feel like this? And presumably inability to bond can be a a big part as well. Nikki, I'm going to keep you with us. We've had lots of messages on this. So thank you so much for for raising this topic. Um, Simone's saying, thank you for this. My eldest turns four next week and I still feel traumatised by his birth. It made my existing mental health problems even worse. Couldn't breastfeed because I was so ill. More needs to be done to support women at such a vulnerable time. We're going to be talking about the importance of support, um, both from the wider community, but also from partners as well. And if you want to share your story or indeed have a question for the fit midwife, we've got Nikki Oliver joining us live on the line. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It is 2.37. You're listening to Dubai I 103.8 and we hear all the time, a healthy baby is all that matters. And that's simply not true, especially when all too often healthy merely means surviving birth for both mother and baby. Birth is a life-defining experience. I don't say that lightly. It sticks with you. And You ask any mother about their birth stories and you can see her and hear those emotions rush back. There are stories, positive and negative, that we relive over and over, whether we want to or not. Nikki Oliver is with us this afternoon. She is known as the fit midwife, a practicing midwife here in Dubai. She's also a training specialist in pre and postpartum. And we're taking your questions on traumatic birth and maybe if you felt 
invalidated, dismissed after a tricky or distressing delivery by those words. At least, baby is healthy. Nikki, I'm curious then, if you are at the receiving end of, of that phrase, you know, what are some of the things you can say to, you know, stand your ground and make people understand exactly what you've been through and what you're going through? What's effective? Yeah, there's quite a, a few things that people can do. Um, people can say, a lot of the time, like you mentioned earlier, people will say, at least baby's healthy. And it does come from a, a well-meaning place. Um, and generally what I recommend to the women that I come into contact with, I advise them to be quite upfront and quite honest with the people that are, they're having this conversation with. So they can say, yes, but I was quite traumatized by my birth. It didn't affect me positively in the way I hoped it would. Mm-hmm. Kind of by calling out what happened to you and putting that out there, it can make other people feel actually feel quite uncomfortable. But what it actually does is it helps them reframe that in their heads and makes them think, oh, yes, right, that was maybe a throwaway comment. I maybe shouldn't have have said it in that way. I think, um, yeah, there, I think that's, I think owning it I think is really really important you know I know yes I'm so glad you know baby's doing well but it was a very scary experience for me or I wish I'd been treated with kindness and respect you know there are there are definitely ways of communicating I think for that it comes back to people understanding what you've been through and being able to support you by you being honest about it Um, I want to go to the text line um, if you don't mind. Daisy saying, I have birth related PTSD and I didn't acknowledge it properly until my daughter was 10. Um, what did help was finding an EMDR therapist. It doesn't cure you totally, but it makes the daily thought cycles and hair triggers go away and less debilitating. Thinking of anyone going through this. An anonymous message here saying, I had a very traumatic birth back in 2012. It's still affecting me now psychologically. Great pregnancy, but a four day labour. Um, that nearly ended very badly. By way of a miracle, my baby was born healthy and without any complications. Because he was healthy and I was so relieved, I put it to the back of my mind. Um, but after a year, I started to get flashbacks and I just don't know what to do with it now. I don't think it is ever too late to talk about things, you know, and seek the help that you need. And whether it has been, you know, 10 days or, or 10 years, Having, yeah. that, having that community around you. Um, what, when, if it has been more recent, Nikki and people are struggling to heal physically and emotionally, are grieving after a, a traumatic birth, what kind of things and places people are around here in Dubai to help support a family? So there are a lot of perinatal mental health specialists now. It's an area that we've seen in the last two years really kind of grow and blossom. And that service is actually now very readily available. Um, and a simple Google search can tell you the institutions that have that there. Um, there's a lot of individual clinics and you don't need a referral or anything like that. You can just go and make the appointment and just talk about that like with um, a professional. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of postpartum doula services and they're really, really good because what they do is they allow you to speak to somebody, not a medical professional, but just be able to voice your your thoughts, your feelings, and sometimes just speaking to somebody, getting those out is the most important part. 
and getting it out to someone who doesn't have any kind of skin in the game. You know, I've had a friend who had a very yeah, difficult delivery absolutely. and her, even her husband who saw what she went through couldn't fully appreciate why she was traumatised and, and heartbroken mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. So to go to someone and say, you know, this this is exactly how I'm feeling and I don't need to apologise about that to you because you're impartial is is so, so powerful for all sorts of different situations, but certainly when it comes comes to birth. Um, Julia, thank you for your message. Julia saying, I agree that treating the mother with respect and compassion is vital and that dismissing genuine trauma with at least your baby survived is horribly cruel. The care a mother receives makes a huge difference to how she feels and recovers and can support her if things go wrong. And I'm using a really interesting analogy here saying, my son is 12 and I feel this sometimes. I've had counselling, which has helped, but trauma is something that affects me even now um, a counsellor described it as a big bruise that keeps getting knocked if you get a little knock on unbruised skin it doesn't hurt but if you get a little knock on a bruise it's very painful indeed um, Nikki I wanted to end really by talking about how to have a, a positive birth and some of the things that you can help mums and dads put in place to be realistic around you know, what, what we can expect from this life-changing experience. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you help families? Of course, yeah. So I would tell every single family the exact same thing, and that is to educate yourself around birth. And it's not just as simple as reading what to expect when you're expecting. <laughs> My least favourite book, for the record. <laughs> oh, it's so long. It's I mean, so dry. The whole yeah, it's like reading a medical textbook, to be honest. I tried to read it and you know even I got bored and this is my job um (laughs) so the thing is getting into antenatal classes usually in your chosen hospital is the most preferred method because they will explain to you what happens within that establishment we don't have um like universal care when it comes to private health care. So each hospital may have slightly different mm-hmm. pathways or guidelines. So going to your actual hospital and asking for the antenatal classes there is a really good idea because you know I'm going to work within within that structure, within this, within this building, and how do I get what I want with what they are providing. So that's always a really good place to start. Um, also, again, doula services are brilliant. If you just feel very lost and you think, oh, gosh, you know, I'd have my mum here if, if she was here or I'd have my sister or my best friend. But if they're not in the country, they cannot attend for that support, then a doula is the next best thing mm-hmm. because they are not medical, but they will guide you through that education process. They will help you learn what goes on around birth and they will help advocate for you during that time exactly that um a message here saying i didn't want an episiotomy but an awful suturing felt every single stitch a horrible experience um and got one despite despite it i think that idea of consent during birth is actually a really important topic and one i'd like to revisit with you on another time because we've had a message Mm -hmm. here about um having a sweep without consent and i think Mm -hmm. that that Feeling able to speak up for yourself in situations like that when you're, you are literally at your most vulnerable or to have a partner that's there to advocate for you or a doula can can really make such a difference to to people's experiences. And I mean, I, I, I'm not able to talk about what, I, what happened to me after my second um, for legal reasons, but let's just say it was very, very difficult indeed. And mm-hmm. it's 
it's never too late to kind of get the help that you that you might need and choosing a midwife choosing a doctor who's someone you can really trust someone that you want to be around you at that moment is is absolutely key um nikki a couple of messages asking for your details um you are the fit midwife on instagram you are a practicing uh, midwife here in dubai um and when, when it comes to training are you able to share the best way of getting in touch is it instagram Instagram's the best way to get in touch with me, yeah. Okay, thank you so, so much, Nikki. Really, and thank you for speaking to us from the hospital today. Really appreciate your time. We'd love to have you in the studio and explore um, some of the issues that you're you're working with families here in Dubai further because I feel like conversations like this are just so, so important for raising awareness and validating what uh, what men and women go through around birth. Nikki Oliver speaking to us, the fit midwife. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.